Good evening, everybody. It's great to see you again uh, on this Wednesday night. Uh, we're, we are really glad that you're here, and whether this is your first time or, I don't know, your, your hundredth time, we're, we're always happy to have you here. Uh, my name is John. I'm the campus pastor here for RUF at UVM. And this semester, what we're doing here on Wednesday nights is we're working our way through um, a, a letter that a guy named Paul wrote to an early church in Rome. This is where this letter gets its name. It's called Romans. And this, this letter of Romans, it was been divided into 16 chapters. These divisions came later on. When he wrote it, he just wrote it as a letter like you would receive in the mail. It didn't have verses and chapter numbers. Like, like I said, these, those, came later, uh, those came later. But it's 16 chapters long. And really the first half of this letter is devoted to the subject of the gospel, or what we would call good news. It's the good news about Jesus. And Paul explains in eight chapters what the gospel is. And then he spends the last half of, the, uh, of that letter really flushing out what it means for us to live in light uh, of this gospel. So far, we've seen that the gospel is contained in the scriptures. It concerns Jesus, and it's for all nations. Uh, we saw last week that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And we talked about it in two ways. First, you can think of the gospel almost as like this live wire. That if you touch it, it's going to shock you. Um, Similarly, if you come into contact with the gospel, it's going to shock you too. And it's not just going to shock you. It's also going to save you. In that, it's also sort of like maybe a defibrillator. (laughs) That's a hard word to say. But like this thing that like when you put it to your heart, it shocks you and it brings you back to life. That's almost kind of like what the gospel is. It's this power of God for salvation, this thing that will shock you. God puts it to your heart and says, this is what's going to save your life. You can also think of it like this. Uh, I I use this analogy that in the space, like behind these walls, there's a bunch of cords carrying electricity. You can't see this power with your eyes, but it's there. It's all around us, right? It's what's making these lights work. But if that power that's sort of behind these walls is going to be of any benefit to you, you've got to plug into it. And in much the same way, this power of salvation, it is in the background of your life. It is always there. It is always running behind you. Your plugging into it does not determine whether it's on or not. It's always on. But you've got to to plug into it. You've got to tap into it for it to be of some benefit to you. That kind of brings us up to speed. That was verses, that was chapter one, sort of verse one, all the way up to verse 17. It brings us now to a whole new section of this letter that really goes from uh, 118 all the way to 320. It's a big block. We're going to work through it all tonight, and I'm just going to hit some of the main points. And the thing that I, like my objective tonight is really twofold. First of all, I want you to see that you really do need this salvation that is on offer. I want you to see that you need it. But secondly, I want you to want it. And that's different. Right, because you can need something but not want it. And I'm trying to do both tonight. I want you to see, one, that you need it, but also, two, that you want it. Uh, The first half of my talk tonight is sort of like a doctor sitting you down and telling you you've got cancer. And I know that's kind of a downer. (laughs) But, like, and and so I'm just going to be upfront about that. Like, it's going to feel a little like that, just being like, hey, You've got a problem. I've got a problem too. Like all of us in this room, we've got sort of cancer. That's the bad news. 
Like if you've got a doctor and you've got, if you've got cancer, you want your doctor to be up front with you. You don't want him to tell you like something else. Like, oh, it's just a tummy ache. Like he, you want your doctor to be very, very clear with you and to be serious. Like this is the, this is the situation. And as someone who's like ordained to care for you, like as a pastor who's like, who loves you and like cares about you body and soul, like I don't want to, I want to be upfront with you. I want to be honest with you. This is, this is the situation, just like a doctor would be with you. Um, but my point in like telling you these things is not to shame you or to put you down. Like what a lousy doctor that would be is like, you've got cancer, <laughs> have a nice rest of your life. Like you, you share that news with the intention of like steering them in the direction of a cure. And there's almost this paradox at work. It's the sick ones who actually get better because they're the ones who are receptive to like actually getting medicine. And there's also sort of this paradox at play that in some ways the worse you know your situation is, the greater the joy you have when it's alleviated. Like Jesus hints at this when he says, those who are forgiven little, they love little. And those who are forgiven much, they love much. And so far from like trying to, I don't know, pull any punches, I just want to be as upfront and honest with you as I possibly can be as we follow sort of the flow of Paul's argument through these, these verses, okay? So let's just dive in. We read last week, like I said, verse 16, 17, and now we're just picking right up with verse 18. This is like what comes right on the heels of what we heard last week. Paul writes this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, of humankind, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, the first reason that we're not all right, not all right with God, not at right, not all right with ourselves, not all right with the world around us, That reason is because we wantonly refuse to believe that we are God's creatures living in God's world. That's how I would summarize this. Our chief problem is we wantonly refuse to believe that we are God's creatures living in God's world. God says, essentially from these verses, there is no excuse for your atheism or your apatheism. There's no excuse for your living a self-centered existence or your boredom and lack of wonder. There's no excuse for it. Because he says, my, my eternal power and my divine nature, this is God speaking, right? But he's saying, my, my eternal power and my divine nature, they are on full display every single day of your life. You just walk out that door, those doors, and you will, you're stepping into a world that God has made. It's full of my glory. It's full of my wonder. The heavens declare my glory, God says, and the creation points back to me, its creator, every single day. 
We deny, though, what is most obvious. And this fact about us, this denial, this suppression of the truth, is what leads to all kinds of destruction and dysfunction in our lives. The reason the world is in the shape it is in is because we refuse to believe that we are God's creatures living in God's world. And the reason our lives are filled with so much anxiety and turmoil and pain is because, again, we refuse to believe that we are God's creatures living in God's world. Uh, Bertrand Russell, he's an ardent atheist. He was once asked what he would say if he found himself standing before God on Judgment Day and God asked him, why didn't you believe in me? And Russell replied, I would say not enough evidence, not enough evidence. And God's answer from these verses is that there is plenty of evidence. Just look around you. I used an aquarium illustration last week, and and I'm inclined to use another one this week, not from Finding Nemo, but from like Willa's fish tank. She has a fish tank in her room, and um, uh, I've I've been helping her out with it. And um, I don't know, I was just looking at the fish in the fish tank the other day, and I was imagining this sort of conversation amongst them. Like, do you think that there is like a world beyond this tank? And in some ways, it's like, it's so obvious, right? Because here they are sitting in Willa's bedroom. (laughs) Like, the only reason they're there is because we have created the space that we've put them there. Like, everything around them, the water, the plants, the lighting, all of it is just screaming, like, there's somebody here who's, like, put you here. (laughs) Like, you did not, like, nothing about their environment, nothing about their existence is self-made. Like, they are there entirely because of our choice entirely because of our doing like we put the gravel there we put the plants like you get the point and i'm like that is for me an accurate picture of what god it's like god is almost like feeling that like the frustration i might feel if like a fish is like i don't believe john exists you're like you're stupid <laughs> right? Like, right but there's a sense like with some humor of like god being like how can you how do you not get it how do you not get it like everything around you screams my existence. In fact, you're just, the, the very fact of your, like, being alive, like, you would not exist if there wasn't somebody before you. Like, of course, your mom and dad. But, like, your entire existence is predicated on there being another person who existed before you. And God's just like, hey, just work that backwards. All of it. Like, this is just, it's not just true of you personally, it's true of this planet. It's true cosmically. Like, it's all here because of me. And so to Bertrand Russell, with all due respect, like, there's plenty of evidence. And it's not evidence that you need a PhD for. It's the kind of evidence that, like, a kindergartner can grasp. It's kind of sad and kind of funny that you can have a PhD and all these letters behind your name, and you would, pa- you would not pass a test. You would fail a test that a kindergartner would easily pass. Like, think about that. You can have a PhD and all the letters behind your name, and you you couldn't pass perhaps a test that a kindergartner would ace just because they're using, I don't know, they're childlike and, like, in some ways, they're right reasoning. Anyhow, the problem is not a lack of evidence. The problem is with the person interpreting it, particularly with his or her heart. We see out of our hearts, is what a mentor of mine liked to tell me. 
And what he meant was this. What we love, what we desire, what we want, it shapes how we see the world. And it shapes the kind of information that we deem valid or invalid. If your heart is pure, if you love God first and foremost, you're going to see the world clearly. But if your heart is darkened, your vision, your outlook is going to be clouded. The problem is not that God hasn't provided enough evidence. The problem is with the seer, particularly with his or her heart. The heart wants what it wants, Woody Allen said. And he said this to justify his affair with his, his adopted daughter. Right? This is the problem. The heart wants what it wants, and your heart and mine, it doesn't always want the right thing. More often than not, it doesn't. It's disordered. And disordered loves leads to disordered vision, which leads to destructive lives. The first reason that we're not all right is because our hearts want what it wants, and mostly what we want is to be our own gods. Mostly what we want is to call the shots. We wantonly refuse to believe that we are God's creatures uh, living in God's world. We wantonly refuse to believe that there is someone who made us and has the right to tell us how life works best. We don't want to believe that. Right? That's, the, that's sort of one of the first points that Paul makes here. And at this point, I think Paul anticipates that some reading this letter are going to object. They're going to say, okay, Paul, that might be true about those pagans at, I don't know, the University of Vermont, (laughs) right? But we're Jews. We're God's people. God's revealed himself to us. We know his laws. We know his commandments. We know what's right and wrong. We are okay. And Paul would say to that audience, not so fast. Not so fast. Here's this next sort of text that I want to throw up. He says, if you call yourself a Jew, um, you could just as well say it in, in our context. If you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself like the people of God, and you rely on the law and you boast in God, and you know his will and you approve of what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Well, then you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking it. As it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's saying, that doesn't absolve you from any guilt or responsibility at all. In fact, you in some ways bear a greater guilt. If you know God's laws and you're not doing them, what does that say about you? He says in 2.13, it's not the hearers of the law, but the doers of it who are righteous before God. It's not the hearers of the law, but the the doers who are righteous. They're the ones who are declared okay. And listen, none of us are doing them. (laughs) Right? 
And this is why Paul concludes, like this two-chapter section of this letter, he concludes in 3.9. Are we Jews any better off? He says, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are not under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. All right. This is our problem. All right, like I said, my first objective is to show, like, you need salvation. And I'm trying to, like, really press this point home now. And so is Paul. Like, in these first three chapters of this letter, he is doing his darndest to paint this picture for you. That God is righteous. He's over here on, like, you can imagine, like, God is over here on this side of the room. He's in his corner. He is good. He is beautiful. He is kind. He is full of love. He's full of justice. He is full of grace. He's beautiful and he's righteous. He's over there. And all of us are over here. He's righteous. We are not. He has said it in so many different ways. Right? Talk about our unrighteousness. And then that clear, like, no one is righteous. Not one. We're over here. Your life is full of sin and guilt and shame. And mine is too. So, like, I'm right there with you. We're there. And there's, there's this gap. Right? This gap is not empty. Like, it's not like there's something that is standing in the way. Like, right now, you could clearly walk from that corner over here to over here. You just take a step over. But this gap that is separating us from God, it's not mere distance. It's sort of like emotional distance. It's sort of a spiritual distance. You know what this happens. Like, when you do something wrong against a loved one, you can be physically close to them and emotionally be planets apart. Because they're like, I've done something to really hurt them, or I'm holding a lie, I've, I've done something grave to injure this relationship. And so I'm not talking now about physical proximity. I'm talking about emotional, spiritual sort of um, a distance or gap. Every time we sin, it's like we're, we're, we're creating, we're laying like another brick and a wall that's separating us from God. You can think of it like that. We're sort of building a wall that's sort of dividing us from God. And man, we are laying those bricks on thick. Or you can think of it like garbage. This is more an easier, I think, image for me. Like every time I sin, I'm just throwing garbage into our relationship. It's just trash. And this trash, it piles up. In fact, the word for hell is Gehenna. Gehenna is actually a place. It's a place outside of Jerusalem. It's where they burned their trash. It's a, it's a pile of burning refuse. And that is what I think this pile that separates us from God is. It's just a pile of garbage that makes it impossible for us to, like, get to the other side. It's this thing, and you could call it hell. It's just this mountain of garbage that makes it impossible for us to go to where he is. Y'all tracking? 
This is why you and I need salvation. But I want you to want it. Which is also why, like, after this long sort of explanation, sort of like this sit-down conversation that Paul has, saying, like, look, you all have got cancer. Verse 321, it says, but now. And this is what we're going to pick up next week. But Romans 3.21, after this long sort of diagnosis, it says, but now the righteousness of God. Right? It's like these, these the, the first notes of like the, your favorite song or the greatest song that's ever heard. Like he's about to play this new song and it's a song that is made all the sweeter because of the notes that came before it. If the bad news is real, like you've got cancer, but the good news is that there is a cure. Like you are cut off, but there is somebody who wants to like reconcile with you. And I think the thing is that's going to actually make you want to be saved is when you recognize that he wants you. Because you can like have cancer and feel like, oh, there's nothing to live for. But when you encounter Jesus and you discover like, oh, that one over there is incredibly beautiful. And that one over there is incredibly kind. And that place where he is, it is like the fulfillment of all the places that I've ever loved. Like all the, like in small groups this week, we're talking about like, what's your favorite place in the world? Your favorite place in the world, I think, is in some ways just a shadow, a shimmer, a fragment of like what that place is. And what it contains. Like, in some ways, you're all describing home in so many words. I've heard that answer a lot. Like, it's this place, but it's not just this physical place. It's this place because it's wrapped up with all of the people that you've experienced it with. And that's all communicated here. I want you to want that. And I want you to want him. And you all, he wants you. Which is why this section, 118 to 320... It's sandwiched with good news. One, like the, the, what we heard last night or last week, it was all about the righteousness of God. And what we're about to hear next week, it's about the righteousness of God too. In some ways, the righteousness of God is taking this section and it's holding it in its hands. Because this passage and the news that I've shared with you tonight, it's, yes, it's a word, but it's not the first word and it's certainly not the last on the matter. It is bracketed. It is sandwiched by grace. And God is taking that sin. He's taking this mess. And he says, I can hold that. And I can crumple it up. And I can cover it up. Because it doesn't have to define you. And it doesn't have to define the rest of your life. I want you to see, last thing that I want you to see from this, is that this, yeah, where this fits in the overall letter. It's kind of near the beginning. It's not, like I said, it's not the first word. And it's certainly not the last. There's a lot more to be said. It has its place. And its place is situated within a context of grace. It can be swallowed up. It can be covered up.